Hi everyone, it's Lisa from Diary of a Black Social Worker. It's been a while, but I'm back in the podcast chair and wanted to share this interview with you that I recorded back in March. Yes, March, March of 2021. Due to family and work responsibilities, I was unable to release the recording, but I finally have come up for air and I'm happy to share this recording with you today. Stephanie is the guest, Stephanie Beebe. She is a licensed clinical social worker, a palliative care social worker, a director of palliative care and social work in an oncology practice, and a therapist in her own private practice. She shares a wealth of information on how she educates the community and other clinicians, and she also really focuses on powerful messages of purposeful living. I hope that you'll enjoy this episode and find it helpful in working with your patients and your colleagues. I am excited to have you on tonight. So I want to just jump right in and introduce um, our listeners to Stephanie Beebe, which is, and the Beebe stands for Broadnax Bouchard, right? Am I saying that correctly or Bouchard? Got it right. Yeah. And Stephanie is a licensed clinical social worker. She's She's an advanced certified hospice and palliative care social worker. She has a private practice and she's also a the director of, of, of palliative care and social work in a community oncology practice. Did I miss anything? <laughs> no, I think you got it. Good. Happy social work month. Thank you. Happy social work month to you too. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dive right in. I'm really excited about having you on this evening just to share with us about your experiences and, um, and your role as a palliative care social worker. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what, you know, what is palliative care? What is your role? What, what does a palliative care social worker, what does, what do you do? Sure. So, um, you know, palliative care, of course, is a, um, a, a method of care. It is a method of engagement for patients, a holistic approach that focuses on holistically um, palliating or uh, soothing or treating the symptoms that a patient has as a result of a serious illness. And so my role as a social worker on an interdisciplinary team, uh, which is usually a physician, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, or a PA, or um, social worker chaplain, um, is to really provide the psychosocial emotional piece of the supportive puzzle. So basically, as a social worker, my job is to really help address the um, emotional pain or the um, whether it is economical stress or strains, whether it's really any kind of psychosocial emotional strain or impact that is a result of the serious illness that the patient is trying to learn to live with. Care can be provided to um, anyone with a serious illness, and it's actually appropriate for anyone that has a serious illness. A lot of times, when people hear palliative care, they think it's really just for patients who have, um, you know, a terminal illness. But actually, palliative care could be beneficial and to accompany any kind of regular treatment because it's a holistic approach. It doesn't mean you have to stop the treatment that you're actually receiving currently, but it's an it's an addition to um, because the way palliative care approaches. Uh, symptom management, it just looks a little bit different. So we can aid in any disease process. And actually, there's some evidence that really supports that palliative care um, improves prognosis and overall um, ability to manage the illness, redu- reduces um, emergency room visits or complications as a result of involvement of palliative care. No, thank you for providing the explanation. I think that a lot of people think that, right, that you have to be yeah. dot or you're terminally ill to receive palliative care. So thank you for, for, for clarifying. Now let's go back a little bit and talk about what led to you getting and how did you get into palliative care? Because I know that as social workers, you know, if you're if, if, if they're new if they're new social workers listening right now, you know, they could be quite fearful when we think about palliative care, end of life decisions, end of life conversations, hospice, and going into that realm of social work. It could be quite overwhelming and scary for new social workers and seasoned social workers too. What, how, how did you get into palliative care social work? 
So it's really funny to me, kind of like trying to figure out my origin story. That's the question I probably get the most outside of just regular palliative care questions is kind of my origin story. And so mm-hmm. um, here recently, I've been doing some deep thinking about it. And I think really probably growing up was training ground. Um, I am the granddaughter of a Baptist preacher who, you know, visited the sick and spent a lot of time at the bedsides of people. And he was one of my favorite people. And so is one of my favorite people. And so I spent a lot of time with him shadowing him. But then also um, I had a significant loss that I experienced that really, you know, I enjoyed being at the bedside and I wanted, I never forget like the hospital team asked, they I asked questions and they were patient and answered all of my questions and let me be at the bedside and let me help do things even as a, as a young person. Um, and I think that laid an impression on me. Mm-hmm. And and now, fast forward to me entering social work, you know, I thought I would really be focused on geriatrics. I was a medical social worker. Um, and really, people would always bring me in to have the difficult conversations with families that just didn't get it. Like, you know, we all probably have had those families where... Um, you're there and you're really maybe doing a little bit of case management or just regular medical social work, but difficult families come. And I was always the person people would reach out to when families were having difficulty processing that the patient wasn't going to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had done a little bit of PR in hospice, but really just, you know, dabbled in it. But um, as a result, one of my organizations that I was an employee of, we did the Respecting Choices training. And I will never forget the hairs on my arms literally standing up. Um, and Respecting Choices is a method of engagement for um, advanced care planning. And I was sitting in this training, my hairs on my arms stood up. I stood up, I kind of got choked up, like emotionally moved. And I looked at one of my colleagues and I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm, and from wow. that moment on, I have spent every moment trying to study, engage, and find places to um, get into that work. And here we are, maybe about nine years later, seven years later. Um, and it's what I do. And it's it's something I'm very passionate about. And I love and I, I, I see it as a, an honor to be able to share that space with patients. Because like you said, a lot of people can't do it. A lot of people are turned right. off by the difficult conversations and about the emotional responses of people and what it means to really face our mortality and explore death as part of living. But for some reason, for mm-hmm. me, that is a space that I am very passionate about. You're, with, the, with the work that you're doing, it will allow people to... Um, to break down those barriers, right? Because yeah. it, it is overwhelming, especially as a person of color, um, having these conversations. And we're going to get into that in a minute. You know, as a, as a Black woman talking about uh, death and dying, it's really not, um, it's kind of taboo in our community. So um, I look forward to talking, touching on that in a few minutes too. So what does a typical day look like for you in, you know, at, at work? What does, what does it look like for you? Are you rounding and then you get referrals? Like, what does that look like? So a typical day now for me looks a lot different um, now that I'm in an administrative role. And so, um, as you mentioned, I'm in an oncology practice and I am the director of palliative care and social work for the entire network. So we have about, we're a massive practice. In the, um, and so we have um, over, over um, 100 sites of service. So that means that I am um, the direction and administrative hand in the, the services that we currently provide. But then also I provide um, clinical services um, and clinical support to my teams, but then also one day a week and, and in clinical practice myself. And so it looks a lot different from me when I used to be every day providing this service, seeing patients every day. Um, and also I'm still in private practice too. And so um, it looks a lot different from when, you know, daily I would be meeting with patients and family to, you know, really talk about goals of care and explore their understanding of their prognosis and treatment options and making sure that they understood what their doctor said and provide that emotional support and help them process where they're where they are with their illness every single day. Now, I just do that one day a week, but then also provide support to teams that are doing that um, as well throughout our network. Um, So for me, no day looks the same, which is kind of what I love. 
No, yeah, it sounds like a wonderful position, and you're able to. You said you're responsible for how many other social workers? Is it just social workers? Are you also have nurse? You know, nurses, palliative care nurses, or just primarily social workers that you are um, that you're overseeing or providing support to? Yeah, so our um, I have both palliative care and social work. So social work, uh, I uh, am the director. It's a really unique role um and so basically what it means is i lead the administrative direction of what these practices look like so what the clinical practice for those teams look like um and so with our social workers they are they cover the state of texas and so you have social workers in um dfw gulf coast area you know san antonio austin i mean we span um texas and so i am their clinical direction for that and then palliative care looks a little different because we do have a palliative care medical director and then there's me and then each site you know has their uh their clinical leadership just based on the site but as palliative care we are a unit if that makes sense and it's kind of confusing mm-hmm. and so really my direction um is to bring palliative care and embed it within the oncology practice and so i've been with our practice since um last august um mm-hmm. and my job is literally to build and grow and so right now we are a very small palliative care team. And so I have, um, we have palliative care providers um, in Austin and then we're building in the DFW area. And outside of that, I just have my clinical practice where I'm supporting a site, providing that clinical support as we do like primary palliative care, which means mm-hmm. that we don't have a lot of palliative care specialists, but we're training. So I spend a lot of my time really right now, the bulk of my time training our teams and our providers to have what we call serious illness conversations using the serious illness mm-hmm. conversation uh, method and you know doing some training around how do we just engage and enhance advanced care planning we have some really great things that we're doing to really make this part of palliating patients and their emotional needs and meeting them where they are and exploring their goals and their wishes part of routine care Awesome. Awesome. That sounds like an awesome endeavor. And I'm sure that in the, in the next year or two, you guys will be totally like booming. I assume that due to COVID and yeah, due to COVID and, um, and, and, um, you know, just our day-to-day lives now has, how has COVID affected that practice or that area of work that you're doing? Has it, has it been good? Has it been, you know, bad, um, in the sense of, um, getting people, getting staff members engaged, getting the, the patients engaged. How has COVID affected that care that you guys are giving? You know, I think COVID, um, of course, it's a, a challenge. It, you know, presents challenges in how we uh, move with patients, you know. But I think it's created a lot of opportunities for engagement and for us to do a lot of pivoting. And one of the things I'm really proud of is, like, our organization did a great job with the technology pivot. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Whereas before you always were like, you know, family members needed to be present for family meetings and it'd be hard to pull them in. And with technology, they're in the comfort of their living room and they can have as many people as they want present and we can have those sessions. And I think that's, you know, that is one of the um, and I hate to say a good thing that came out of COVID, but I I think that is something Mm -hmm. that I think is valuable um, and that. Um, we will probably continue long after COVID is over because it's we've seen the benefits of really engaging people in the comfort of their home um, and what that means. Um, but I think it's it's tough when you have initiatives like palliative care because they are not revenue-driven spaces, right? They mm-hmm. are. We see the return on advancement with the quality of care with patients and patient experience, but we don't always see. It doesn't always make dollars and cents with palliative care. And so when we're championing championing palliative care, one of the things that happens when a crisis happens is that initiatives sometimes take a back seat. And that's one of the struggles that I've had this year is that when there is something that requires a focus, like a pandemic, things that you're trying to build sometimes have to slow down. Um, But I think with COVID, one of the things that I am grateful for is although we, you know, I, I maybe we're not building our teams as fast as I had hoped, but we, what we are doing is the focus has been on how do we make sure that every patient that we touch is prepared and has explored what's important to them with their wishes and desires. And so really bringing that conversation to the forefront and equipping providers to do that. COVID did that. I think had the mm-hmm. pandemic not happened, we would have just gone on with people 
having to you know make decisions in crisis but it highlighted what that does to people how that creates complicated grief you know when I was in the acute setting one of the things I would say is that people would leave with guilt and grief and they didn't have to leave with both but because we Mm -hmm. failed to adequately plan and help them prepare they leave with guilt too Mm-hmm. But had we had mm-hmm. conversations with the patients and their families about their goals and their wishes, we maybe they will always have their grief, but we maybe could have helped address the guilt that they're now carrying. And that's something we right. can do to help in this process is really make sure that people are talking about those things so that they're not in the midst of a global cam- pandemic and having to make a decision and never have communicated at all about what you would want me to do if something happened to you. Absolutely. And you brought up such great, valid points. And I think we try not to give COVID credit for anything, but you're right. I think that um, one of the things that has come out of it is just the flexibility, things that, you know, we were so, I think, um, kind of rigid about people coming in, whether it's family members or loved one coming in for these, you know, for meetings. And so from the comfort, as you said, whether it's a um, telehealth visit or meeting, you're, we're truly meeting patients where they are, right? Their family members where they are. If, if, if um, everyone has a phone right, right now, so instead of getting on the bus or, or, or you know, having transportation issues or um, the time, you know, people can say, you know what, give me a call on my lunch break and I could make myself available to speak with my elderly mother, you know, and her and her social workers. So I think that you know, we have to give credit where credit is due in that sense. It has opened up our eyes to the to being flexible and to identifying some of the gaps and working um, towards them for the future, you know, so it's really opened up those opportunities. And so you, um, you know, we briefly touched on um you know, being a black woman in in this in this in this um, this role. What about um, the the your black patients or your minority patients? Do you um, do you do you have a lot of those patients in um, in, yeah. in your service? And so, yeah, tell me a little bit about we that. We are in the state of Texas, and so if you know anything about our ma- our landscape or our makeup, let's just say we are a very diverse state um which is really interesting to me that we're so diverse but we stay kind of behind the curve on just so many things but you know when it comes to palliative care and advanced care planning as a whole and I try to I I try to always connect the two because I believe they go hand in hand but I just across the board minorities don't participate um and what happens is a lot of times we have the fear part of it is due to that there is the perception from our clinical and medical providers that we won't have the conversation because how we respond about death and dying. But then also there is our own fear in engaging in our lack of trust in the health system, rightfully so due to experiences and, you know, racial and systematic oppression and, and those kind of things that we automatically assume when someone comes to us and talks about palliative care or even hospice, We think that you're keeping something from us. We think that you're trying to stop us from getting better or that you know there's a cure or answer somewhere and you don't want me to have it. Right. Rather than the perception being that palliative care is adding to something. We are trying to add something to your service, to your care, but that's not the perception. And so a lot of times what I do is I spend a lot of times, especially with in my personal community, and um, with some of the, you know, work that I do here with a nonprofit that I'm a member of on the board is we really do a lot of education, seeking out African-Americans and minority groups and churches, you know, to talk mm-hmm. about, hey, we have to talk about these things. Here's some education. Palliative care is a way to be empowered. Palliative care is a way mm-hmm. to say, you know what, not only is it important to me that I work towards a cure, if that's your desire, but also I want all my other symptoms managed too, and I want the best people to do that. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And I think for the for the um, non the non black or white social workers who are listening right now, I think it's really important because I've seen that a lot. You know. Um, with making referrals to palliative care or to hospice, or I think that a lot of our patients, they, you know, as you said, based on systemic oppression, their um, family history of mistrust and and, and their current um, 
uh, experiences of distrust with medic with the with the medical society, um, you know, they really struggle. Our black patients really struggle to to be accepting of the service, um, and I think the religious piece too plays a role. Oh, it's major. It's major. Yeah, it plays a big role. And you know, what are you telling me now? You know, what do you mean this is going to be the end or? Um, you know, what are you trying to say that God won't help me with this? You know, I want to put my trust in God and I want to make sure that I'm going to him first before I go to these other, you know, before I, I go to these other options. Um, and I think, so the, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I just wanted to speak to that piece just a little bit because mm-hmm. I think that's sure. the issue with explanation. And that's why it's so important that our religious communities also have some education because the reality is that in palliative care we don't want to take your hope away we want you to be informed we want you to be equipped with the information we want you to understand what they are saying that science says but we also Mm -hmm. want you to maintain hope and so for me I'm a person of faith but I do this work Mm -hmm. every day with a clear understanding that I am not God and I don't have a crystal ball and although we believe in science science for me is not the end of the story that is my personal Mm -hmm. belief but also what we have to do when we educate our patients is meet them where they are with what they understand and that's hard to do when we have a distorted perception about we don't know what we feel and so Mm -hmm. for example for me I can see a patient who has no faith base I can see a patient who has all the faith in in whatever they believe Mm in um, and have very strict and um, rigid beliefs for me Mm -hmm. my job is to help them see how what they believe fits in the puzzle to help palliate their symptoms and so I don't tell them I, I can't say what can happen to them I'm not God I don't have a crystal ball what I can say is that we can maintain our hope, but right now in this space, even when we cannot fight the disease with the options that we have available, we can fight for comfort and quality of life. And that is my team's job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the main thing, comfort. I It really breaks my heart sometimes when I see patients not wanting to... Um, to accept the referral and you and it takes a lot more time and and trying to I, I for lack of a better word finagle you yeah. know trying to get them to um to to um understand the benefits of the service and it's a vital service you know so um it's very it's 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 usually very difficult for me to see them not wanting to to be accepting of that service and when they have it then their families tell us a little bit when what what have you seen in your experience what have you seen when patients you know if you've worked with a patient who was really ambivalent about having the service what do the what is usually the the result after they are accepting you know the positives what have you seen you know as far as improvement with care and you know and even the family stressors you know and that's what i love about palliative care and even hospice is that we understand in order to be able to care for a patient you have to care for their caregivers too you have to Mm -hmm. care for their family unit and so you know of course we have some families sometimes who you know get nervous or feel like it's not the best fit for them but usually the vast majority of my career the outcomes have been positive you know, there's sometimes where patients are, um, they feel like they need more, they want to do more, um, especially near end of life. Sometimes it can get a little confusing, but usually if we've done our job well, even if the result is death, it's a great experience. And I know people are like, wait, you're saying somebody died is great. I'm saying, because I believe death is part of living. And so if we can help someone maintain their quality and their decision making and what they would want in that space too, then I feel like even though we wish the outcome may have been different, we have still done our job. And so um, I keep this thing in my office and it's a card from my family when I first started doing this kind of work. And it said, it's from the daughter, the husband, uh, I'm I'm sorry, the father passed away um, and he was just really rigid, just he was just one of those, you know, how they say just like really hard patients, didn't really mm-hmm. want to talk to people. And and we kind of forced them into this space of having this conversation. And really what it was is the original was like masking his fear and his concern. Um, and he felt like the only way that he could remain hopeful or uh, even be strong enough to be present in the moments that he needed to for his family was to just act like he was against everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. And the card from the daughter says, thank you for giving us what we didn't know we needed. 
for most people, mm. that's what palliative care and advanced care planning is. It's something that you don't know you need until you're on the other side. Absolutely. And so I think most patients, most families, you know, when they are on the other side, they're grateful that they had the service. They're grateful that they had the experience. Uh, because it is support and there aren't a lot of levels of care that can provide the support in the way that palliative care and hospice can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned some of the work that you're doing in the community through um, religious organizations. We know that that's very important in the lives of uh, of our minority, especially black family, you know, black um, patients and communities. That's one of, that's like the, um, you know that's the foundation our religious institutions and our communities what are, what does some of what are some of the things that you're doing in the community as far as not even only palliative care but advanced care planning if any what are you doing yeah, in the community so with it's that it's kind of twofold one thing i do is i serve on the board for an organization called care and prepare and what we're doing is a, a tarrant county organization really working to just educate as many people and have as many people have conversations about goals of care and advanced care planning and so we train community leaders and providers to engage their communities in having these conversations and so that's one part but then also um, I do a lot of education and uh, with churches and organizations and sororities about advanced care planning and about just really making sure that we kind of change the narrative about what this means for us you know it's kind of like remember like not long ago you know we talked and everybody was talking about making sure that you know we we did our part in regards to mental health you know it was mm-hmm. all the buzz it's still and it's important it is critical that we talk about mental health but it's like a, the tide shifted up really quickly before it was taboo nobody was talking about it really in, even in church settings and now it's mm-hmm. okay to talk about mental health in church it's okay to talk about getting access to that kind of support in addition to our spiritual support so I feel like right now is also a great time to say, hey, there are people in your community, in your church, members of your congregation who just had to deal with having to make some tough decisions. There are people who have complicated grief right now, which maybe wouldn't have happened had someone said, hey, part of living is also talking about dying. It's also talking mm-hmm. about caring for your family in this way to make sure that you know what you would do if mama got sick. If daddy got sick, if big mama got sick, what would she want you to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just had a conversation with a patient of mine today about that. And, um, you know, he cried. He sat there and he cried. And just we just talked about him having a conversation with his with his adult children about what his what he wants for himself how to complete a healthcare proxy just starting with something that's simple and you know he's just started tearing up and you know saying that he you know he thinks he's going to die or he thought this would be the conversation that he would have when he was getting ready to die and it's like no I and I use myself as an example you know I said I have a healthcare proxy you know and I talked about that and and, 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 and getting proxies in order. And um, I think that it's very important for, for us um, to use ourselves as, as examples and to, and to show and to teach and to say, no, you can, it's okay. You can make healthcare decisions and not, you know, and not be on your deathbed. Okay. And that's the whole reason for that, to make sure that our needs, um, that our wishes are known to our family. And it eases so much um, uh, drama and 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 pain of families not knowing what that person wants. Right, and I think like every first every person over the age of eighteen should do some kind of advanced care planning. So start with a you know health proxy or medical power of attorney, depending on what state you're in, and then also a direct mental physician or living will, depending on what state you're in. And I think the reason that's so important, I tell people um, this story all the time. I'm an only child. And my mama loves her baby. Do you hear me? And I love her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but one of the things that I have a very clear perspective on what quality of life is for me. And so I've had the conversation with my husband and my mom. And I had to because my husband is my medical power attorney. I know you need to get my mama to know if she could, 
my mom would have me like you know like they did James Brown you know kind of hanging out for a little mm-hmm. while in the glass case like where I'm just would be mm-hmm. she would have me on, on all the devices baby sitting in the room somewhere <laughs> yes but that isn't quality living for me and so I had to make sure she understood that if something were to ever happen to me, Corey's not trying to take me out. He's not trying mm-hmm. to get rid of me for my insurance money. He is doing what I've asked of him. It's morbid, but I'm very open with what my wants are. Even for my children, I have teenagers and I tell them straight up, this is what I want. I do not want to lay there for, you know, for however many days. This is not what I want. And so... You know, we have to have those conversations. Yeah, and I think we have to normalize yeah. having the conversations because I think mm-hmm. what people think, oh, is something wrong? Or you, you know, is there, or do you want to be able, yes, I want to live and I live intentionally mm-hmm. and I live purposely and I want to live full. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I need you to know what, how I want you to do just in case I'm going to die. And that's absolutely part of, that's part of changing the narrative about these conversations. Like my family, I get on their nerves because when we are all together, I bring it up at least once. And people get mm-hmm. upset with me, but it's something that has to be done because you never know when the tide will change. Just here in Texas, the other day in the ice storm, we literally had an accident that killed. It was almost like seventy cars involved in a pileup. Mm. And the mm-hmm. lives that were lost just headed to work. Mm-hmm. And there were just critical, like I, I also provide support in other areas and some PRN roles and the critical decisions mm-hmm. and the spaces that had to be made. And, you know, the, the people that are struggling, like it is, it is important that we do this and it's an act of love. And I know it may not feel like it in the conversation because it's hard, but it's an mm-hmm. act of love. It's an act of love. It absolutely is. It abs- and I love that, that it's an act of love to make those, to have those difficult conversations and to make those decisions while you still have the ability mm-hmm. to make those decisions. It alleviates so much stress on the family, a spouse, uh, you know, as you said, the family dynamics of who wants this person's insurance money, who wants this. And we know that those things happen. Okay. But it's, you know, it's so imperative to have those conversations with all the parties, whether you're single child, single um parent, a sing- a only child, a, a divorcee, whatever it is, we definitely need to have those conversations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that 2020, you know, with COVID and 2021 has opened up a floodgate of conversations surrounding equity. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the new uh, words, equity and justice and representation. What has, you know, what has it been like for you, um, you know, in this in, sounds like a, a wonderful role where you are and, and other roles, even being in a private practice. What has it been for you being a clinician of a clinician of color? Um, has there been any, um, you know, how what has your journey been like? I'm sure not void of, you know, yeah. a couple of peaks and valleys, but how, how has it been for you? So I am one of few minorities in leadership in my organization. And so um, that itself, I think, comes with some challenges, I think, because number one, there aren't a lot of minority palliative care providers. Um, so I mm-hmm. think that's the area, just, to, just what happens in that space. But um, I think because we live in a society where there are, you know, issues with diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think there is very um, unlikely to go into spaces that don't include those same challenges because our organizations and our businesses and our healthcare and our schools, every system is a microcosm of our overarching society, right? It, it mirrors mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. which our society looks like. And so I think all those things will have have those challenges. And so one of the things I've been trying to be very intentional about, and I, I appreciate my organization for allowing me to, is to have a space to say, we need to look at these things differently. Just because it's how we've always done it, and although maybe well-intended, that does not mean it's void of, you know, um, impact on others in a negative way. Um, and so I think it's really important that we call out things in our systems. One of the things I've been very intentional about is, you know, I'm, you know, I have tattoos and locks. And before I had locks, I had a big afro. And one of the things I am very mindful of is that I take up all of my space as authentically as I can. So that means for me, early in my career, I did a lot of shape shifting. 
where depending on who was in the room, my dialect would change, how I, my tone, um, how I engaged, you know, it would change. And I decided that in order to make sure that the, the black clinicians that come behind me feel elevated and supported, I have to make sure that they don't feel that they have to shape shift because I wasn't authentically myself in the space. That people didn't understand that uh, I could be a skilled clinician and also speak slang and make Megastallion references in the same time, <laughs> making clinical references, you know, to to skill, you know, uh, using frames for theory. I could do those all in the same sentence. Absolutely. And so I need to be able to be myself so that people don't think that that's what's required. Absolutely. No, you said that so eloquently. For real, girl. Like, you know, like, it's just like, you know, like, you touched on you that that's it i can't even come i can't even say anything after that that's just yes because i think that a lot of us i have locks too and i'm all i'm very cognizant of um you know how people may look at me and so even when i first decided to have locks a few years like it's been a, probably about nine ten years now and i remember being so fearful about going from having my straight hair what would white people think about me what would I look like what would their perception of me be like would I be um you know because of growing my natural hair would that cause me to have less opportunities how would I be perceived and you're right you do you do shapeshift as you said and you know and it's very and it's trying not being able to be your authentic self on the outside or on the inside. And so you get to a point where you're just like, you know what, this is, this is it. This is who I am. And, but unfortunately for some people, it doesn't come that, you know, it doesn't come that easy. I think with age and time and, and growth, spiritual, emotional growth, yeah. professional yeah. growth, you become more confident and more, um, and, 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 and loving yourself and appreciating who you are. Yeah, and I think too, um, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day, you know, even though I can show up as authentically as myself, doesn't mean I still don't have the layers of like challenges of dealing with imposter syndrome and sometimes getting into the room and feeling like I'm not equipped in the room just because I look different. Like those things still come, mm -hmm. even as confident mm -hmm. as I feel about who I am, that just comes with navigating the territory that wasn't built for me. But just because I Absolutely. decide to, or even I've been given a seat at the table, doesn't always mean that the chair is comfortable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And these are some of the things, too, that, you know, as a black woman, like, I mean, listen, as women in general, black or white, we are, we know we're, we're in a society that often tells us that we're not good enough, no matter what size you are, no matter how your hair is, whatever, you know, but then it's even, it, as you said, it's an even uncomfortable seat, um, for, for black women. Um, because as you said, it's not, we, it, the system wasn't designed for us. Right. So that, it's even more hard. Even when you have supportive environments, um, one of the mm -hmm. challenges is, is that, uh, I'll speak personally, even though like my team is very, very supportive, my leadership team and, you know, being um, a director with my, my peers, they're very supportive. But often I, in my own mind, because I understand the way systems work, I understand I can't always move how they move or I can't always, mm -hmm. the fear that I can't move how they move or the fear of perception mm -hmm. or the fear of uh, questioning my judgment just because I may not be out as equipped and that comes twofold one because mm -hmm. in the medical model social workers are not seen as equal so that's a thing in itself but then you add the fact that I'm in the leadership position as a social worker and I'm also a black woman so those layers mm -hmm. of trying to show for me the pressure I had to try to start trying to shed was I felt like I had to prove that a social worker could be a director I had to try to prove that a black woman could be a director when all mm -hmm. those things aren't my requirement but that was pressure self-induced mm -hmm. self pressure that I felt like I had to prove which that's that's not my requirement my requirement my requirement is to just show up and do my job and do it well Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And these and th these are some of the conversations that we usually have, you know, at our dining right. table with our girlfriends over, you know, over appetizers like, girl, I can't, you know, how am I going to keep up with this? And it, and it brings so much anxiety and so much and, and it's self-imposed. 
Um, and it, and it's and I'm so happy that you're bringing this up and, and that we're able to have this opportunity to share and let people know, like, truly, like, these are some of the things that we really struggle with. As you said, your only responsibility is to show up and do your job. And I'm sure that you're doing a great job. But it's the other things, the self-imposed um uh, you know, stressors that we put on ourselves and feeling that we're, that we're, we're not as good, you know? So it's very difficult breaking from out yeah, of that. I'm learning. I'm and, learning. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's daily. Yeah. I'm choosing daily to unlearn all those things that even with the best environments and being raised and birthed in the best environments with people who have the best intentions, society just makes an impact. And there are some impressions that we mm-hmm. have to unlearn. this pandemic has taken such a, an emotional toll on all of us. What are some ways that you practice self-care? So I hit things, so I don't hit people. <laughs> and I say that as I'm joking, I, I'm, but, but I love to box. There is something that is like, I call my heavy bag bae. Um, and I, oh. I might get jealous, but like I, I love to get to that heavy bag, you know, throw on those boxing gloves and just let it all out. And, you know, really just you know, burn off the steam. I wish I, I would do it more. Um, Cause it's right now, it's almost like I get so busy that I, before I was doing it like almost every day. Um, but right now mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I have a really bad several days and I'm like, oh, I just gotta go through the heavy bag. So I've gotten out of my routine. Um, but that's one of the, the things that I do. And I feel like it gives me the most um, relief. Being able to just give it a good go. Cause I feel like I'm burning energy. So I get those endorphins. But then also just mm-hmm. something about the impact, you know, it's, it's really cool. Um, and I pray and meditate. You know, I believe in, mm-hmm. um, as I said, as a person of faith, I believe in, um, in in prayer. But I also believe in meditation and the power of trying to to really just teach your body how to respond and having those quiet spaces of, you know, telling myself, um, I believe in the power of affirmation and the power of the tongue. So I do a lot of affirmations mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. <laughs> meditation because I believe and also practicing gratitude too because I believe mm-hmm. there's so much that we can do to shift our perspective some things we have no control over but our perspective is one of them um, something we can't control and I believe that's something that I can do to change and sometimes it's hard sometimes my head is just the, the things just keep happening the pandemic brought on so many different challenges and a lot of days um holding space not only for your patients but holding space for your team and as a leader trying to figure out how to do that and hold space for them but advocate for them at the same time for their safety advocate for them as humans dealing with the pandemic as well but the needs of patients and where that fits that's a lot of course yeah. um, you go home feeling totally drained and overwhelmed and tired but and, then you still have and to show not up. having enough you still have to show up for the people that are you know um, assigned to you so you still have to show up for your family and so trying to find that balance um, in the pandemic has been difficult but I believe in the listen I'm a therapist with a therapist I believe in the power of good self care and having somewhere to empty out um, and so all those things have kind of I feel like sustained me Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it sounds like, yeah, no, it seems like you're doing great self-care practices. Um, and I'm very happy to hear that. Maybe I'll have you come back on to talk about, you know, a therapist with a therapist, <laughs> right? To talk about, because that's another thing where in our communities, we don't talk mm-hmm. about getting ser- therapy and seeking therapy and the benefits of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, no, it sounds and I'm sure that other the listeners want to know how long have you been doing boxing so oh wow so let's see my son is eight so actually right after I had my oldest son he'll be nine next week or two weeks next week mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. when right after my baby weight I've always kind of dibbled into boxing a little bit um just because you know mm-hmm. as a kid with anger issues people are always trying to find things for you to do to manage your emotions my mom's a social worker mm-hmm. so Oh wow, Ooh. that's awesome! And so, <laughs> is it? No, I'm just playing. Yeah, it's awesome. I know, girl. <laughs> um, but and so, I've always dribbled a little bit into it. But after I had my first son, I just had a hardest time getting the weight off, trying to figure out like what to do. Um, and so, I started doing like kickboxing, get title boxing, and it unlocked something for me. And I've been pretty. Um, 
you know, consistent, you know, just with having it as part of my regimen for my workouts. Um, I like hitting things. I, I mean, not, I mean, it's just something very soothing about it. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I'm sure your mother has nothing to worry about you over there with Corey and, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a wonderful way to relieve stress and to self-care. And, I'm, I'm, you know, that's exciting. I'm happy that you that you have that as an outlet. Um, as far as, you know, living in a world of uncertainty, again, with COVID, what are you looking forward to? What are some things that you're looking forward to for tw- into 2021? Professional, personal? Um, well, personal, I'm really excited. I launched a podcast. Um in the in the midst of COVID and so I'm so excited to see where that takes me you know I've always done a little bit of like uh, motivational speaking and education and in the pandemic one of the things I realized is that it gave me a lot of joy and so I'm really excited to try to see how I can do more of that um so that's something that's mm-hmm. personal but also like when in regards I guess that's maybe professional um too but um my private practice is a uh, I'm a member of a group private practice and we are female minority led or um, practice and mm-hmm. I the work that we do is absolutely inspiring and so I'm so excited to see what happens as we continue to grow and the work that we do um, and what that means for us but also our community our community mm-hmm. um, you know about 89% of our, our clients are African American and so mm-hmm. that means People are wanting help. They are wanting, you know, mm-hmm. healing. They're in. They are seeking out. And um, the idea that we could be the generation that looks this generational trauma and the burdens of not just mm-hmm. um, our own trauma, but the oppressive and systematic racism and what that means from a trauma lens, we could be part of helping mm-hmm. to heal heal our community is absolutely inspiring. It. Just, absolutely and just even hearing you say it it just gives me goosebumps to hear it because yes that you know despite this pandemic it has opened up the doors for not only social workers in general but especially social workers of color who are looking to um preserve those legacies and to open up doors of opportunity for for healing um during such a challenging time you talk about equity right right? with you know it's it's just it's just amazing so i'm so proud of that practice i'm sure that you guys are doing a a great amount of good work in your community i'm I'm excited thank you so much i can't wait to see you know what what happens but um i work with an amazing group of clinicians and it's just they inspire me so much and so um that's exciting Absolutely. Now you mentioned briefly about your podcast. Tell us a little bit more about that and where can our listeners find you on social media? So my podcast is called It Comes With Living. Um, And so Mm -hmm. really it's just a culmination of the lessons that I've learned sharing time and space with people who are facing and exploring their mortality or even just really difficult life experiences Um, because I believe that I don't have to have every experience to learn a lesson and so I take some of these lessons and have guests um, who've done some really hard things and are doing great things or just living Um, because I think sometimes we think that people have to do something miraculous but really sometimes just living through some stuff is miraculous in itself and so hearing people share their stories and their lessons um, is what I do on the podcast and so um, I am um, the podcast is available pretty much on every outlet uh, uh, Apple Podcasts um, Spotify, Spotify. Google, all the, the big ones um, and then we are on Instagram at it comes with living and then I'm on all social media platforms at I am Stephanie BB. Um, and that's pretty much where you can find me. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And how are you, it's social work month. How are you, how are you supporting your staff and recognizing them? How's your org? Sounds like you, you work in a really great organization. How are they and you included supporting your staff and, um, during this so month? Funny you should ask. So I am still in the process of finding a really great present. I just felt like the number one, I love the NASW theme this year, which is social workers are essential. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to figure out like what's the best gift for them. It's hard because uh, you know we're spread across the street, so I have to get it quickly so I can make sure. And I kind of got behind because I was trying to wait to see what the um, how the gear looked from NASW um, just before I started ordering things. And so, of course, they'll get a gift and you know be honored. But one of the things that I'm excited about that we're going to do differently this year is that. Um, before, you know, our organization is uh, oncology practice before it highlighted social work, just in general, kind of, but never really talked about them as clinicians. And so that's something I'm very proud of, the narrative around our social workers, not just as social workers, but as clinicians that are a member of our interdisciplinary team. Um, and really making sure that people understand these aren't just people who, you know, go to school and like to help people. These are clinicians with master's degrees and advanced training and who are really working and adequately trained to provide support in this area. And so um, we do a newsletter, our practice does to our patients. And so social workers are going to be part of the feature um, this month as well. Uh, but really just kind of um, honoring them and allowing them to, um, you know, know that they're appreciated. And I hope they feel that all the time, but really being super intentional in um, the month of March to make sure that they feel celebrated and honored. Um, we had a social work conference in August, which I was really excited about. Um, and so we honored our social worker of the year and did mm-hmm. some different things to highlight all their individual contributions. But, you know, wanted to make sure that it's just, it, it's kind of like, you know, when you think about Valentine's Day, like you want your loved one to say, I love you on Valentine's Day and you want to feel special. But also if you really love me, I should feel loved every day. And that's how I feel about social work month. I don't want them to just feel like, oh, it's social work month. Finally, people see me. I want them to feel seen every single month that we value and celebrate their contributions. And so I hope if I haven't done anything that they feel that within the practice. I'm sure they do because just hearing from you and speaking with you now, I feel (laughs) just hearing your voice and how intentional you are and how caring you sound. I'm sure you're doing a great job supporting your staff 365 days of the year. So I want to thank you so much for the wonderful work that you're doing, Um, being a motivational speaker, being an educator, being a wife, being a mom, being a social worker and having these difficult conversations and, and normalizing them. So I thank you so much for coming on tonight. And I, you know, happy social work month and thank you well, for the wonderful you so work that you're doing in your and community you and beyond. Space and what you are doing. And I just, I celebrate you and I honor you for the work that you do and how you are so intentional about not only highlighting the voices of social workers um, and advocates in this space, but also bringing a light to, to what it's like to be a black social worker. And so I just, I appreciate you and I celebrate you for that. <laughs>